Hey there, thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I have a couple of announcements just to kind of emphasize this morning. The first is I really would like all of you to join our growth group series. We are uh, just completing putting together the book and the, the study series that we're doing. I'm excited about it. Uh, the eight weeks we'll be together, we're, we're calling it Transformed. And it's the idea that, that we are a church that believes in word and spirit, spirit and word. And, and we want you to have intense and wonderful encounters with God, but we also want you to be able to interpret your encounters by the word of God. And so we believe that these eight weeks will be a transformational time where you'll learn to study your Bible in such a way that you get the joy of personal discovery. So these groups are filling up pretty fast. So I really urge you, grab one of these brochures, check out a group, pick out a night that's good for you, and join in and and be a part of this series together. Now, tonight... We really would like to invite all of you, not just our members. Members, we want you to be there, but we would like all of you to come be a part of our annual meeting. Our annual meeting is a time to reflect on God's goodness and grace and faithfulness over the past year. We worship, we pray together, and then we look at his vision for the coming year. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that tonight. I understand that youth group is not going to happen tonight, so we can all be together for this. This happens at 6 o'clock this evening, so we'd love for you to be there for that. Now, over the last few weeks, it has been uh, my urging and, and even a sense of, a little sense of urgency that the Lord is calling you, calling us as a church, into greater and greater strength. And so this, this series has been about the elements of strength, how to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I, I want to urge you to, to realize that the, the real enemy of your strength is really your pride. See, pride is the defense mechanism of a broken ego. Uh, when we say to one another, you hurt my feelings, we're really saying you hurt my ego. Can't really hurt feelings. You hurt my ego. And so humility is really the, the answer to our pride. But, but humility basically defined scripturally is a radical form of honesty. It means that you're not denying the reality of your weaknesses. You're not denying the reality of the places in your life that are broken. You're actually owning them. Because you see, any place that you hide gives access to the enemy. Even in some of the psychological circles, particular secular psychological circles, what they basically are teaching is a better lie to cope with the worst lies. And the enemy of your soul looks at your weakness as an access point. And if you will not be honest about your weaknesses, you will not see that kind of victory we sang about. You, you see, victory only comes when you need something to be, to be victorious over. You're only an overcomer if there's something you've overcome. 
And so many of us have hidden our weakness. We have tried to only operate in our strength. And when you do that, you are, you're closing down the access of spiritual power, which gives you that kind of strength. So the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is the verses we're going to look at, he exposes that dealing with weakness and embracing your vulnerability, your weakness, is the road to strength. But it means that you've got to counter your pride and actually enter into this kind of radical honesty of humility. Now here's the Apostle Paul. I like it when you read the scriptures with me. And so I'm going to... I, I'm going to ask you to read out loud. So let's read God's word together. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me, or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Now what I'd like you to do before we unpack this is I'd like you to look at your neighbor and make the same declaration. Would you sit, look at them right now and say, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's say it one more time. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul is facing his weaknesses. And what's happening is there is a strategy here to cause him to be discouraged. He has been the subject of an assignment of Satan, he says. This isn't just emotional, it's spiritual in its source. And this assignment is to get Paul to be cast down in soul. It, it's to get him sidelined. It's to get him to stop taking risks. It's to get him disqualified. See, the enemy wants and has made an assignment and a tactical, strategic advance on Paul so that he will lose courage. 
See, if he loses courage, he'll be out of the game. He'll be out of the battle. So what Paul is giving us here is a really strong methodology for dealing with discouragement. Now, I want you to understand that there's a difference between disappointment and discouragement. And there's a difference between discouragement and depression. Actually, I, I like to think of discouragement as a lazy man's depression. You're not really willing to do the hard work to be depressed. So you're just going to be discouraged. Okay, You're not going to really feel deeply enough to actually be sad or, or, or depressed or despairing. You're just going to kind of not feel anymore. So the difference between disappointment and discouragement is pretty profound. I hear people sometimes, they say, I'm disappointed, but they're really saying I'm discouraged. And some people say I'm discouraged, but they're really disappointed. Now, here's the difference, and I can save you some money in counseling right now, all right? So disappointment is when you, as a, a, a human being, have expected something, and it doesn't happen. When you have counted on something, and the opposite happens. And so disappointment is just being healthy. It's just recognizing that it's not going the way you hoped or wanted or planned. That's, that's not an unhealthy emotion. That's, that's, it hurts. It makes you sad. It's not going the way you hope it would go. That's nothing at all wrong with that. But you see, feeling that way, hurt, feels helpless. And so we never like to stay there. We always want to draw conclusions about our emotions. Discouragement is a conclusion about being disappointed. And the conclusion is this. I will not care anymore. I will not risk. I will not hurt. When you get to the place of discouragement, you have numbed or hardened your heart. This is why it is so dangerous. A hardened heart cannot experience joy. A hardened heart cannot experience love. And so one counselor said that discouragement is one of the greatest measures of maturity. So if you are never discouraged, it means you just don't care about anything. And that may be the case with some of you, that you've so protected your heart from any disappointment that you have hardened your heart, you have numbed your heart so that you don't care about anything. Here's the problem is, we can't rely on you for anything. If you don't care about anything, you're not going to fight for us. If you don't care about anything, then we can't get close to you. And you can't depend on you because you don't care. But see, if you're going to care, then you're going to hurt. Because a caring person is continually dealing with discouragement. How many times do you give to someone and they give no thanks back? How many times do you do for people and no one appreciates it? Probably describing most marriages right now. I mean, I've counseled thousands of marriages, and you know what the number one thing it usually is? You just don't notice. You just don't appreciate. You don't know what I do for you. 
And so a lot of us get to the place where we no longer hope because we no longer want to hurt. We no longer want, we no longer long for because all it leads is to discouragement. And what happens here is if you're going to be a caring person, which is the only way you can keep your heart soft and keep your heart receptive, then you're going to have to be able to deal with discouragement. And if you're continually discouraged, it means you don't deal well. And it's not just that you have an absence of spiritual strength. It's that you have an absence of spiritual maturity. So the continually discouraged, the continually numb, the continually hardened heart person is a spiritually immature person. And so what happens to a lot of us is we want to appear like we're righteous, but you never fool God from having a hardened heart. And guess who else you don't fool? The assignment of Satan is always looking for the weak spot. Truth is, anywhere there's a lie, he's got you. Because he is the father of lies. So in verse 1, I want to unpack this incredible passage for you. Because it's really, it's, it's kind of difficult, but it's beautiful. So in verse 1, Paul starts talking about visions and revelations and about having to boast. You know what he's talking about here is that he has poured his heart into the church at Corinth. He has loved them. It's possible that he actually wrote them seven letters. He was so intensely jealous for this group of people as their pastor, as their spiritual father. And yet, this church was one of the most interesting churches that has ever existed. It probably had more spiritual gifts than any church has ever had. They had every spiritual gift fully in evidence, fully operational. But they were the most messed up church that there's ever been. I mean, these were converted mafia people. They, they were extortionists, blackmailers, black market profiteers. I mean, everything about their former life was corrupt. They were temple prostitutes who had had sex with strangers as a matter of worship and all manner of things. So this church was filled with all kinds of really nasty, messy looking stuff. And yet Paul loved them. And Paul gave himself to them. And Paul poured out his heart to them. But they were rejecting Paul. And the reason they were rejecting Paul is there were a group of so-called apostles who came into town and said, Paul is wrong. Don't you see? Paul, he doesn't even look good like we do. You know, he, he, he doesn't speak well like we speak. These guys began to persuade of the genuineness of their message by their own charisma, their own personality, their own persuasiveness. And they said, we have far more revelations and visions, and you should listen to us. And the people started listening to them. And they started rejecting Paul, and they started rejecting the message that Paul had brought to them. And they were following the message of these false apostles. And so Paul writes in verse 1, and he says, you're listening to these people and it's false doctrine. And Paul, at places, because these apostles claim to be so much better than Paul, and Paul would sarcastically call them Upermen or supermen. Don't tell me there isn't a gift of sarcasm. It's right there. 
It's spiritually wonderful and very evident in this church, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so, so he's forced, he says. I am forced then to reveal about revelations, about visions. And he's saying, but you don't understand. If I reveal this to you, nothing is going to be gained by it. And he says, the reason is that I'm not in competition with them. You see, if you understand the gospel he's saying to them, then you would understand that when they say they're better than me, they're not living by the gospel. I have people sometimes, and some of them it's a jest, and some of them it's been serious over the years, who will come up to me and say, I'm far more spiritual than you. Or I'm much more righteous than you. My response is, okay. <laughs> but see, when they, anybody says that, when any of you are comparing yourself and say, I'm more spiritual, I'm better than, what I know is you don't get the gospel. Somehow in your mind, you're better than somebody else. Have you not understood the gospel? That every one of us were so sinful that Christ had to say, pay the same price for each of us? He didn't pay less for me or more for me. He paid the same price for me because I am that sinful, but also I am that love that he chose to pay that price. And when you get the gospel, you don't look around and say, I'm better than this one. I'm more spiritual than this one. I'm, uh, I'm more worthy than this one. You just go, it's all grace. Amen. It's funny how people think they're a better class of sinners, I guess, <laughs> than other people. But <laughs> it's been fun to be a pastor for almost 40 years because I get all kinds of stuff. But my favorite one was this lady brought me a two-page typewritten list of things that I've said that are inappropriate. <laughs> and I went through the list, looked at them all, and then she goes, now my mother is coming next week. Please don't say any of these. <laughs> I was tempted to say them just because she told me not to. Because, see, a lot of people want the appearance of holiness. But do not realize that the fact you want the appearance means you don't understand the gospel. You are so evil, he had to die for you. But you are so loved, he chose to do so. There is no other gospel. There is level ground at the cross. And so when there's somebody coming in and saying, I'm better than you, immediately a red flag should come up and say, wait a minute, I better not listen to this person. Are you tracking with me on this? What he's saying to them is the only reason I'm an apostle is not because of my visions or my revelation. It's because of the calling of God on my life. And the only reason you should listen to me is I am under authority, not because I have power that is unlike the power of other people. So then he says, I hate talking about this, but I have to. And so what we realize is he says this, and it's very funny. I know a man, he says. And he says, I know a man who went to the third heaven. Now that 
That's an odd way of putting it, but you see, he's talking about himself, but he doesn't really want to talk about himself. But he, he unpacks something that's really interesting. Talks about a third heaven. Now, people dispute what the first, second, and third heavens are, but in my mind, the first heaven is anything that's physical space. So it's our atmosphere, it's where the stars are, it's where the sun is. That's the first heaven. It's a physical reality. But when we talk about a second heaven, I believe that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about a heavenly realm. So there's a heavenly realm or a th second heaven that intersects with your life. It is the warfare realm of both angels and demons. And so what many of our cultures recognize this second heaven, they recognize the, even the corporal existence of spirits at times. They recognize that, that this is something we deal with every day. In Western kind of secular culture, we like to exclude that second heaven or that spiritual realm altogether and say we're not influenced or we're not affected by anything but physical realities. But most cultures do not look at it that way, and the Bible doesn't look at it that way. And Paul here, who is the greatest of all apostles, is saying there was an assignment, a messenger of Satan, that was imposing itself in his life. Friends, I know you might not like this, but there's an assignment against you. And the assignment is looking for where you're lying. It's looking for where you're lusting. It's looking for where you're worried. It's looking for where you're angry. It's looking for where you're depressed. It's looking where the hardness in your heart. Every weakness you have, the enemy sees as an access. But Paul says there's a third heaven. And that's the throne of God. And he says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, he was taken and given this incredible intimacy with the living Lord Jesus Christ on the, at the right hand of the Father. Now, he tells us it happens. Do you notice something? He tells us no details of it. And he says, these are things I'm not allowed to speak of. So, are you tracking with me so far? So there's two things in this passage that we want to look at and then we want to draw conclusions from. The first is his heaven experience, and the second is his thorn experience. So the first, the heaven experience. I love what, how Tim Keller unpacks this. He says... People who have intense, intimate encounters with the living God are very reticent to talk about their experiences. And so I want to share with you some of the people who have talked about this and explained why Paul doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to boast about it. So one of my favorite, uh, I would say, preachers, mentors, uh, is a guy by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. I started listening to him when I was a teenager on cassette record sermons of his, and then I've read his books all through my life, and every time I preach on any subject, I always go to him, because he's one of the best. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, not only a pastor, but he was a medical doctor. He was a brilliant man. And when many churches were folding in London, Lloyd-Jones every Sunday was preaching to 1,500 to 2,000 people. This is the kind of ministry that he had. But in 1949, he experienced a complete burnout. And so
took some time off, took a sabbatical for a whole summer so he could read, study the Word. And he said he could not read, he couldn't study. He could get nothing out of anything that he was reading, no comfort whatsoever. And he was getting very frustrated because he was very depressed. He was very down. And he said while he was getting dressed, there was a book on his bed. And in the title of the book was the word glory. And when he saw the title, he saw the glory word out of the corner of his eye, the glory of God filled his bedroom. And he said he was overwhelmed by God's glory, but it made him cry for three days. And he was just, he was just a puddle, He's, you know, just for days, unpacking his pain, unpacking his weaknesses, unpacking all the things that were in his life, and the glory of God was emptying him so he could fill them. But here's the interesting thing about this story. In his entire life, he never told this story. He never preached about it. He never used it in an illustration. It was too sacred. He would not share it. The only reason we know is the biographer heard from those who were there, maybe his wife, his family, that this is what happened. And it's the only way that we know. But listen to me. God never wastes your sorrows. One of his most important books for me is a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Second one that I want to share with you is D.L. Moody. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. He was so, so powerful and effective. He was kind of based out of Chicago. And there was a, I can't remember if it was two old ladies or one old lady or whatever, came up to Mr. Moody and said, Mr. Moody, we are praying that you will get filled with the Holy Spirit. And Moody's like, why are you talking to me like that? You know, kind of, he was, he was, he was angry, he was defensive. And, it, and he, he was like, why are they saying this? I have a very powerful ministry. I have a, all these things going on. And then when he stopped his defensiveness, he goes, but I'm missing something. And he began to pursue what they were praying for. And the, my favorite part of this story is it didn't happen in Chicago. It happened when he was walking on Wall Street. Here in New York City, the glory of God, the love of God started to fill him as he walked the urban street. He said the love flowed over him in such a liquid form, he thought he was going to die from it. And at times he would say, oh God, stay your hand. I can't take anymore. And then he would get his breath and go, okay, more. Kind of a thing. But here's what he said about it. I never tell anybody about this because I don't have the words. Well, one of the Puritans wrote this about such experiences. He says, It is a glorious, divine manifestation of God unto the soul, shedding abroad God's love in the heart. It is a thing better felt than spoken of. It is no audible voice, but it is a ray of glory filling the soul with God as he is life, light, love, and liberty. Corresponding to that audible voice, O man, greatly beloved. See, that's what Paul experienced. And Paul, like these others who experienced the same thing, did not want to share the intimacies he had with Jesus as a means to compete with false apostles. But it did not mean in any way that he came out of that incredibly private, intimate setting and kept his faith private. No, as a matter of fact, he became even bolder for Jesus. 
He became even more, more, you know, lacking in shyness to tell of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have misunderstood me in this. It is not wrong ever to tell of the greatness of Jesus. It is never wrong to tell of what Jesus has done. But what Paul's saying is that deep intimacy is for him and Jesus, not for anybody else. That that is so sacred, it is so special, that you can't even talk about it, can't even share it, because it's so deep. And so verse 6 says, if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But he says, but I refrain from it. Why? So that no one may think more of me than what he sees in me, or what he hears from me. See, Where a lot of us get wrong is that we think a supernatural experience qualifies us for a greater authority than our life can sustain. What Paul is saying is, you don't listen to me because I tell you of my ecstatic experiences with God. You listen to me because my life is consistent with my message. You listen to me because I do what I say. I don't just say practice what I preach. I do what I preach. And if it's not consistent, then don't listen, he says. He's not saying his apostolic, his preaching, calling is based in his deep visions and revelations. His deep calling is evidenced by his life. Come on now. Don't you see, this is telling you about your life, but it's also telling who do you listen to? Who do you trust? If their life doesn't match their message, Paul is saying, then refrain from listening to them. But he's saying here, I've refrained from telling you the deepest experiences I've had with God and what I've shown you is my life. And you can trust that if I'm consistent in my life, then I'm consistent in my message. This is a call to all of us as believers, but especially those of us who teach or lead. I cannot believe growing up how many people I saw that their lives privately were different than their public lives. See, Christianity is not about appearance. It's about reality. It's about genuineness. Authority comes not because you know more, but because you do what you know. Think about this with me. Maybe you've never seen this, but any of us that grew up in locker, went to locker rooms as kids or, 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 or as adults, whatever it is, when you saw a man bragging about his sexual conquest, you realized that man did not love that woman. Because the more he exposed her, the more he revealed he only used her. And often, you felt like he was lying anyway. (laughs) Just to make himself look better among the men. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you have deep intimacy, and it's a deep love intimacy, you don't share the details with other people. See, I adore my wife. I will tell you, she's the smartest, she's the prettiest. I will tell you all the wonderful things that she does, but you will never hear me tell about the secrets of our intimate, private moments. Because that's my stewardship. 
That, that's the love I have for her. But the way that I treat her, the way I talk about her, is always an evidence of how deeply intimate we are with one another. Are you tracking with me on this? This feels very deep right now. Are you hearing me? I feel, his, I feel something of the depth of his glory right here with us. I don't want to run through this. So why is this so important to you and me? Because I think it's important you realize this happened subsequent or after Paul's conversion. I think a lot of us do not realize that conversion is just the beginning. When you are born again, you, you don't have any idea of all that has happened to you or all that has become yours in Christ. And usually what has to happen is you have to hit an impasse. You have to hit a place where you go, I can't do this in my own strength. And it's kind of when you come to the end of yourself that you begin to have these deep, intimate experiences of Christ. Amen. So he tells us this happened. He told us no details of it because, you see, your experience with Christ is your experience. Amen. And it will be according to you and him, not you and me. And whenever someone says it's got to be like this, you just go, no, it doesn't. Because Paul himself had an intimate experience, but he didn't give the methodology of the experience. He just told us he had it. Amen. And so one of the things that I want you to understand is he had this experience not as an apostle. He had it as a man in Christ. So if you are a woman in Christ, this is for you. If you are a man in Christ, this is for you. D.L. Moody was mad when they said, you need this. Maybe you'll be mad at me today that I say, you need this. You cannot, friends, just keep coming and sitting in a chair. You have got to experience an earth-shattering, life-changing encounter with the very glory and love of God so that it's not your knowledge of God through other people. It's your knowledge of God. And you have the access. I don't know if it's going to be today. It could be months from now. But you go after it and you will experience it. One of my, my mentors that taught me so much about prayer, Lisa and I about prayer, we met him when he was 89 years old. So he was a Lutheran church planting pastor on Long Island back in the 30s. And, and he said, as a Lutheran church planting pastor on Long Island in the 30s, he realized he needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, which I was always impressed that a Lutheran would say that. And so he pursued this, this, this experience, this encounter with the living God. And we said, did you have it? And he goes, I had it. There were evidences of it, but I'm not going to tell you what they were. Because he didn't want to say, my evidences will be your evidences. And your evidences have to be my evidences. He just said, pursue it because it is your heritage as a child of God. And it is subsequent to conversion. And it comes when you need it the most. 
So let's talk about the thorn experience. Having experience was fun, all right? The thorn experience is thorny. I mean, it's not, it's not fun, all right? So here's the principle that Paul is teaching. An experience of strength leads to an exposure of weakness. How many times have you had a spiritual high only to be dropped to the worst low you ever felt? Even as a kid, I remember going to camp and just falling in love with Jesus. I'll serve you forever, God. Coming home and my mom said, you didn't make your bed. I hate you. <laughs> my brother, my sisters, come and annoy me. I hate them too. So here I am at camp. I love you, Jesus. I come home. I hate you, mom. I hate you, sisters, brother, all of that stuff. And what I would do is say, well, I guess the high wasn't real. No, friends, the high produces an experience now where you can look at the low. You can look at the weakness. It is the glory of God. It is the love of God. It is the healing work of God to expose your weakness. Strength and weakness will always be a part of your Christian life and your Christian growth. Here is why. Until you see that you're weak, you will always rely on your own strength. It is only when you own your weakness that you can begin to say, how do I appropriate power that is not my own? So let's, let's illustrate that. Suppose you're, you're not patient which you live in New York and New Jersey, so I know you're not. <laughs> and you go, oh God, give me patience. And what happens is all hell breaks loose, which that's one of the words on the sheet that the lady gave me. I just enjoy saying those kind of things. So you feel guilt Oh, I'm not patient. Or you feel shame. Oh, I never live up to what God wants me to do. You see, guilt and shame will not do anything but keep you in weakness. See, either Jesus paid for your weakness or he didn't. But if he paid for it, the guilt's paid for and the shame's taken away. So then you can be honest. Remember, humility is radical honesty. I struggle with patience. All right, so then you go, where will I find spiritual power for patience? It will not be by God empowering you to be patient. It will be because you are in Christ who is patient. Yes. And you will begin by faith to receive spiritual power, which will then make you patient. But it will be to his glory, not your will's glory. Because this moment, this moment, friends, if you're in Christ, all his patience is there. Amen. Suppose you say to me, I just can't deal with my lust. I'm just immoral. I just can't be faithful. Well, of course, that's your flesh. That's your old self. And yes, may, yes, that's a weakness. Own that weakness. But take the guilt and give it to Jesus. Take the shame and put it on the cross. And then say, wait a minute. I am united to the purity of Jesus. So I have purity in me. It's not of me, but it's in me. And by faith, I begin to say, His purity is my purity. 
And you know how Jesus treated every person of the opposite sex? With love, with respect, with honor, so that they could trust him. You know, some of his most devoted followers were women because they could trust him. He didn't treat them like sexual objects. He treated them like sisters and mothers and friends. And so I have him in me. So I can say for the rest of my life, you know, I just can't help it, which is what the enemy wants me to say. Or I can say, I have the purity of Jesus. Think about any addiction you have. Yes, it's real. It's true. But you need to deal with the guilt and say the guilt belongs to Jesus because he paid for it. The shame belongs to the cross. It's nailed there. I'm not going to take it with me. And so you say, yeah, I have a weakness. I have a chemical attraction. I have these places in my life where I'm attracted to things that will destroy me. I'm even addicted to them. But I'm also in union with Jesus who is addicted to none of them. And so I'm by faith going to believe that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that will raise me from my addiction. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's that simple. You see, every time you make an excuse for your weakness or hide your weakness, you're saying faith doesn't work. Because you can do this. Because whatever you believe is your faith. Thank you, Alan. So what's the thorn? He never tells us. He doesn't say if it's physical. He doesn't say if it's spiritual. People like to conjecture, but there's no thing, nothing in the text that tells us definitively. Why is that? Because he wants you to read yourself into the text. He wants you to realize there's an assignment against your courage. There's an assignment against your faith. And the decision isn't what it is. The decision is, will I respond by faith or not? You see, every statement that is there is a faith statement. It doesn't automatically lead to strength to recognize your weakness. It's a process. You notice Paul said, take it away from me. There's nothing wrong with saying, if you've got a physical issue, take it away. There's nothing wrong if you have a spiritual issue, take it away. But he, Paul said, I prayed three times and he didn't take it away. But what Paul says here is the key to the whole thing. And it is, what message am I going to listen to about the thorn? See, Satan's message about the thorn can be seen when you say things like this. This always happens to me. I never get ahead. I go forward and then I get knocked back. All of those are statements of access. This is telling you where the weakness is. This is telling you where the enemy has access. It's telling you where the thorn has gotten the message of Satan through because what's happening is you're, you're encountering the thorn without courage. And it can be whining or it can be anger or it can be worry or it can be depression. But any of those are sourced by the message of Satan that you're not good enough, you're not enough, and that God is not enough. But you can also listen to the message that God attaches. You see, God didn't take the thorn away, but he attached a message to the thorn. And Paul is saying, I chose to not hear Satan's message. 
But I chose to hear God's message. And the Father spoke into the thorn and said to Paul, My grace is sufficient. See, here's, here's why you have to own your weakness. It's because then grace can come into the weakness. Insufficiency can come into the weakness. See, if you're hiding it, you're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to say you're strong when you're weak. See, once you realize His grace is sufficient for your weaknesses, guess what you'll do? You'll also give Him your strengths. Because we're the only faith I know of that repents of our righteousness. Every other faith repents of their unrighteousness. But we're the only ones I know of that says our righteousness apart from Christ is filthy rags. So it's only when, see, this is why growth is a process. It's because first you have to own your weaknesses. Then you start to look and say, even my strengths are fleshly. And then you start to say, I'm not going to put confidence in anything that's from me. But I'm going to put utter and complete confidence in anything that is mine in Christ. See, humility is radical honesty, but humility is also confidence properly placed. Jesus was 100% humble, but he was 100% confident. Oh, that's, see, I'm saving you counseling money right there. So will you stand with me? Will you hear me today? There's an assignment against you. It's against your courage. Because see, once you get discouraged, your heart gets hardened. You decide not to risk, not to care. You say it's better not to want than to want and be disappointed. So he knows. He knows where to tweak you. He knows where your weakness is. But here's what Paul's saying. There's a message from God even in the thorn my grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in your weakness see once you realize you're weak then your strength has to be a matter of faith it's no longer a dependence on willpower it's a dependence on Christ and his power he's patient he's pure he never so come to lust whatsoever and he's in you and you are in him he never fretted he never worried he was honest with his emotion but he never doubted his father he could stand up in the midst of all his enemies and say father forgive them for they know not what they do he could speak to a storm that was demonically inspired and rebuke it and it became completely still all at once that's who's in you so instead of instead of going oh God would you take my weakness away and make me strong would you recognize that he's already given you all the strength you need because he gave you Jesus the spirit of Christ is the very same spirit that anointed Christ and he dwells in you so here's what I want to ask of you. Would you put your hand out, just open it out, 
I believe God is being prophetic and wants you to be prophetic in your prayer right now. I believe the Holy Spirit has been showing you areas of weakness. Would you put them in your hand? Again, this is prophetic, this is figurative, but take the weaknesses. If it's lust, put it in your hand. If it's lying, put it in your hand. If it's worry, whatever it is, whatever place you say, this always happens to me, put it in your hand. If it's a physical issue, put it in your hand. Now speak to the weakness. Speak with me. The Lord's grace, the Father's grace, the Spirit's grace is sufficient for me. His power is perfected in my weakness. Where I am weak, now I am strong. And just turn it over. Just drop it. Leave it here. Leave the access here. Leave the shame here. Leave the guilt here. You see, you can't step into the faith if you keep the shame. You can't step into the faith if you just keep trying to deal with the guilt. The first step is to say, this is about grace, not law. Yes, I'm weak. But Jesus knew that. And His grace is sufficient for that. I mean, there are, there are ones in, of you in here, the enemy has tried to say you're disqualified. Every time you pray, you lust. Every time you worship, you blaspheme. And the Lord is trying to say to you, take that weakness. Get it out where you can see it. Speak over it, the message I give you. My grace is sufficient for your weakness. My power is perfected in your weakness. So instead, Paul says, instead of hiding it, I boast in it. Because where I'm weak, there I'm strong. Because you see, if it was only about your strength, you would never give in. You would keep saying, look, Lord, look how strong I am. But once you see the weakness, you either listen to the message of Satan or you listen to the message of God. You either become discouraged or you become so highly courageous, the enemy will shake in his boots about you. One great preacher said it this way, we can't avoid evil things, but we do not have to let the evil in those things come in us. Lord, I seal what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.